When are we gonna talk about us? When are we gonna come together and clean up what we like? Do you wanna talk about us? Hello, I am Patricia McLean, and welcome to Let's Talk About It on WERU-FM, Conversations with Survivors of Domestic Abuse, and one more way that Finding Our Voices, the grassroots nonprofit that I started three years ago following the domestic violence arrest of my ex-husband, is breaking the silence of domestic abuse one community and conversation at a time. The theme today four days before Valentine's Day, is money, a.k.a. financial abuse. Money, because that may be the last thing you are thinking about when you are swept off your feet, but it is the control of money and hence the lack of money that is the number one thing that keeps women trapped in abuse. My guests today are Olivia and Janine. Welcome, Olivia. So my name is Olivia. I'm 24 years old. I'm originally from Aroostook County. At 18 years old, I graduated high school and moved to Southern Maine and went to college for economics and minored in business at the University of Southern Maine. I graduated in May of 2020 and have been working in the insurance industry here in Southern Maine. Growing up, I my mom was a single she was a single mother. She got pregnant for me when she was 17, had me at 18. My biological father was never really in the picture. He was heavily involved in drugs and gangs, um, in and out of prison. And he was most recently just convicted to, to, to federal prison again. My mom had gotten into a relationship with actually, he was a really great guy. I still remember him. But my mom and him would go to work. And so sometimes his brother would help watch me. And so at two years old, I still remember going into his bedroom and him, um, you know, making me touch him and him touch me and had me taste beer. I still remember the sip of beer. To this day, I still can't believe it took me until I was a senior in high school to actually tell my mom what had happened. He said, you, you know, you can't say anything or you're going to get your toys taken away. So my mom ended up getting pregnant with this guy. And then before my mom had even had my sister, he passed away from cancer. And so then my mom was with a five-year-old and she was pregnant and she was single again. A couple months after having my sister, my mom got into a relationship with my stepfather who abused me for 12 years. I will still remember my very first memory with him. He was like, we're going to go to Toys R Us and we're going to pick whatever toy you want, like whatever one you want. And so I went in, I got the pink Barbie car, never going to forget it. And I thought it was the coolest thing. Now I'm realizing he was 100% just charming my mom, manipulating my mom. He was charming me as a child before he actually started his abuse. As I continued to get older, this abuse continued to get worse and worse and worse. So he bought a dojo, he became a a black belt, and he would force me to train. So there was a lot of physical abuse that would happen at the dojo. I think that it was kind of like a way of hiding that abuse in a way. He was very physically aggressive with me. And that would always carry into just going to, you know, when I go home at night. So there was a day that we were, you know, standing in the kitchen and my stepfather was like, do you know how to get out of chokehold? He wanted to see if I knew how to do it. So he put his hands around my neck and he started to squeeze and I tried. And 
that technique didn't work. And instead of teaching me how to actually, you know, get out of the chokehold, he continued to choke me until I, I fell on the floor. And I had felt like I was, you know, in a 10 hour dream, I felt like I was out for so long. Looking back at it now, I'm like, that was so dangerous because he could have killed me. That is how people get strangled. At 17 years old, my mom had finally, which I never thought I would see this day come, where she was like, all right, I'm leaving him. And my mom slept on the couch for weeks with a knife under her pillow, and he would keep track of our text messages. He was always, anything that we sent or received, he was getting it on his phone as well. So I always felt like someone was constantly watching me. Next husband and my mom is in another abusive relationship. Having this past, I was like, I am never going to be my mom. That, that won't happen to me. Never. I know what not to do. And then at 22 years old, a guy that I was very attracted to and I was already interested in, I had seen him at multiple conferences and I was like, oh, he's like attractive. And he had talked to me a couple of times and he'd always show me a little attention. Like he won gift cards and he gave me the gift card at this conference. So made me feel a little special and couldn't find him on Facebook, couldn't find him on Instagram, nothing. And then finally I found him on LinkedIn. I was like, oh, there he is. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize that he was actually the vice president at that agency. That's awesome. So he's highly motivated just like me and sent him a LinkedIn request. And within moments, I had a response. He changed numbers very quickly. I thought this was my Prince Charming Shining Armor. He came in and showed me more love than anybody else had. Two months into dating, we're on the golf course with his entire family. And then I turned around and he had proposed to me with like my dream ring. And after that engagement is when things started to definitely go downhill. The jealousy, the control really started to come out. I, you know, knew that it's not appropriate to allow someone to look through your phone and and do all those things. But I also didn't want it to seem like I was hiding something. I wanted to be a full open book and say, listen, like, I'm so sorry that you were cheated on in the past. You know, yeah, here, look at my phone. Like, I have nothing to hide from you. And the moment you allow them to start looking through your phone, it's downhill from there. It's downhill. Because they become more and more and more and more obsessive about looking in that phone and just trying to find anything that'll show them that you're cheating on them. It got to a point towards the end of my relationship where my search history was being looked at, my apps were being looked at, what I downloaded. And speaking of apps, I just feel that this is very important to put out there. There is an app called the Calculator Vault app that I downloaded. And I downloaded this app because it looks just like a calculator. And when you click into it, it is still a calculator. It's only not a calculator when you put in a very special code. You can put videos, you can put passwords, you can put pictures, you can put diary, whatever. And as I started to feel like something wasn't right, and given just everything that I had gone through in my past, I was like, I just feel like I should save some of these text messages, save some of these pictures, save some of these videos. And so I hid them in my phone and he would search my phone all the time and never once never once questioned that calculator app but just back to him searching through my phone there was a lot of that then it kind of kind of turned into him showing up at my job just to make sure that I'm there you know just to 
just to make sure that I'm not actually leaving on my lunch break to go with a producer elsewhere. He went as far as actually applying to the agency that I worked at. He was going to leave his chief operating officer position to come work at the agency that I worked at to keep his eyes on me. It didn't just happen overnight. And then it got to a point where I had to call him. I had to call him on my way to work. I had to text him all day long. If I didn't text him, he was calling. He would call my agency and pretend to be someone else just so that he could get through to me. I'm When I say like, I would get like 70 phone calls from him if I did not answer him at work. And I did not know that that is considered actually stalking in the law's eyes. If you tell someone to stop contacting you and they continue to do it, even if you're in a relationship, that is considered stalking in the law's eyes. I would have to send him pictures of where I am. Send me a picture right now. Show me that you're here. And I did it. You're doing all these things thinking that if you supply him this information, he'll be satisfied, but nothing satisfied him, right? Like nothing. you taking pictures of yourself and saying them to him, did that satisfy him? Nope. It's always something else. It's always something else. You know, I did actually that night that I did send him a picture. It was actually a night that I had stood up for myself. I was like, listen, my best friend is in town. I am going out to dinner with her. We went to dinner. I sent him the picture. I got home and there was a fight. There was a fight because a guy had sent me a Snapchat. Now, mind you, this guy that sent me the Snapchat sent everybody the same Snapchat because it was on his story. Like it wasn't directly to me. And he went off. He was like, yep, you're Snapchatting guys. This is not, I'm going to go cheat on you now. And I was like, I didn't cheat on you. Like I didn't do anything. He goes, yep, you just keep doing what you're doing and I'm going to do what I want to do. And, you know, he would threaten to cheat on me all the time. The ironic thing about here is that you were faithful to him, but he probably was cheating on you. A hundred percent. And now that you you say that, you say he probably was cheating on me. I actually got to a point, and this is where I started to know that I personally was becoming someone I didn't want to be. I was trying to find him cheating on me so that I could leave and say, I caught you cheating on me. I wanted him to be cheating on me so bad so I could use that as my like out to get away, I guess. That's, that's a good question. Like, why do you need that in order to leave him? I think that it just for me was kind of like the validation. It, it just would validate myself in thinking like, okay, it's okay for you to end this relationship. Because even though I about 95% of me knew that he was abusing me, the other 5% of me would still be like, but maybe I'm crazy, but maybe I'm the narcissist. And the reason why is because, and I guess it's important that I kind of bring you back a little bit. He did, you know, isolate me from all of my friends and family. So I had gotten to a point in my relationship where I only had him. And the way he isolated me was convincing me that these people in my life did not love me, did not care about me, that Hanging out with this person is going to destroy my career. The one thing he knew was very important to me. I started to withdraw myself from hanging out with those people. Think about guilt. Like I, I went through that in my relationship too. How, how do they get you so that you feel so guilty? Like that was a big part of it. I felt guilty, but there's nothing to feel guilty about. Like he used to tell me, you were engaged, Olivia. Engaged couples don't do that. An engaged couple wouldn't do this. Or... You know, you sit there and you, so like I said, he convinced me that none of my friends or family wanted anything to do with me. He got me all to himself. And then, and then right when you say, no, I'm not dealing with your abuse anymore. You're a narcissist, this, this, and that. I'm not dealing with this. I'm standing up for myself. Then what they do is they say, Olivia, 
First, it's your mom. Then it's Chrissy. Then it's Erica. And now it's me. When are you going to ask yourself if you're the issue? So now, now I'm like, why would I, why am I going to leave the one person who apparently loves me? It's the only person you have left because he's alienated you from everybody else. Exactly. Exactly. And so then it's kind of like every single thing, like when they do something wrong and you call them out, they always put it back on you and it's never their fault. My friend, Christy, she's actually the one who helped me, helped save my life, actually. He did not like her from day one. And it's because she called him out for his red flag. She told me, Olivia, that's a red flag. And she called it out from the beginning. And he didn't like her for that. So I was not allowed to hang out with her. But one day she wanted to me to go with her to see our friend at their new house, their dog, all that stuff. And I was like, hey, I really want to go. I'm going to go to this. And he was like, I'm going to go too. And my and Christy was like, it's not appropriate for him to come right now. And I think a piece of her, it's because they wanted to probably give me a little bit of an intervention. And he was like, do you understand that like, this is so wrong. They don't want to meet your fiance. So he and I actually started fighting about this. And he went and shoved me backwards. And I shoved him back. And when I shoved him back, he tripped over a chair and the chair actually broke. But it was a wooden chair. And when it broke, I thought it was his leg because he said that his leg was broken. So I thought I snapped his, I thought I snapped his leg in half and he was like, get the F out of this place, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, he was like, you need to come with me right now. We went to a freaking house showing while he's screaming at me saying that I don't know if I'm in love with you anymore. Like, you know, making me really, really feel bad about myself crying and he succeeded in preventing you from going with your friend through all this manipulation. Oh, 100%. I mean, it really did get to the point where I would make friends, like plans with a friend because I'm like, okay, Olivia, you're going to go and hang out with your friends. That's okay. It's okay to have friends and do separate things. Like, that's okay. And so I would have this like self-talk and I would be like, okay, you got this. You got this. You're going to go hang out with your friends. Stand up for yourself. And he would sometimes actually allow me to make plans, allow me to make the plans. And then the day and the time of that plan, something would come up. Something. My always wedding. something, right? Always yeah. something. And it's a fight, right? Like my friend's wedding, for example. He made me leave my friend's wedding. I missed out the entire thing. I missed the whole thing. So, and it sucks because you can't take that day back. You can't go back to the wedding day. You can't make it up. You know, you, you missed it. It was always, always about him, what he wants. He's not a person to take no. I got to a point where I thought I was selfish for not wanting to have sex with him every single day when he was ready and wanted to. And I mean, he was very aggressive and violent with me. I'm talking biting my face, causing it to turn purple, calling me, you know, names that I probably should not say on here. And if I didn't do it with him, he was like, okay, then I'm just going to go cheat on you and I'll get it somewhere else, you know, or he would just do it anyway. Like I could literally roll over and I could keep saying like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I'm going to bed and he would do it anyway. Just and it, at that point, it's like, okay, just do whatever you want. So I can go to bed and get over this. And I thought that because we were engaged, I, he couldn't rape me, but that's exactly what he was doing is he was raping me because when you say no, no means no, period. It doesn't matter if you're married. It doesn't matter if you haven't had sex with them for two months. You don't owe someone sex. Even though you were having sex with him every day, he still wasn't satisfied, right? No, it wasn't. And so here's the kicker. So my ex-fiance, once I left him, I went through the process of pressing charges on him. Now, leaving him was definitely the most terrifying thing that I have ever done. And it's extremely important that people 
have a safety plan in place before you do anything like this. I'm so thankful that I had one in place because it is life-threatening, 100%. There were multiple times in my relationship that I tried to just leave and it gets very, very physical very quickly. I remember being thrown into like a garage door and having the hands put around my neck. I remember having a wine bottle come at me. He wasn't going to hit me, but you know, he came at me with the threat of hitting me with it, um, threat of beating me with it. So there was a lot of, you know, there's a lot of physical, like holding you back, taking your keys, not like physically allowing you to leave. So I knew that if I was going to leave him, I was going to have to do it when he wasn't around. And I was going to have to get all of my stuff while he wasn't around. But he, so to backtrack at the beginning of December, 2021, he was finally fired for sexually harassing clients. So a client came forward and she was like, I've been sexually harassed by him. And after they did a thorough investigation, they did terminate him from chief operating officer. When he came home, whose fault do you think that was? It was 100% mine because I wasn't giving him sex. If I would just do what he wanted, then this wouldn't have happened. This is the fourth job that he was fired for sexually harassing women. I lost a lot of money when I lost, when I left that relationship. Talk about that too, because that's something pretty classic is they step up, like you said, Prince Charming. They're sweeping you off their feet and they're going to make life so much better for you. But in the end, it sounds like you were behind when you left him. Talk about that, how that happened. Yeah. Yeah. So I had actually been all through college trying to build myself up, you know, with a savings account. I had never really had anything. So I was really, really proud to graduate college and have like a a big whopping 3,500 in my savings. I was like, wow, like, look at me go. And then I got into that relationship and I had gotten a really good career and I was making a lot of money. And I was like, yes, like I can save this much money. And I'm so excited. He just kept pushing for this, like, I want to combine accounts. I want to combine accounts. And I was like, yeah, I'm not really comfortable with that. And I was like, aren't you, doesn't that make you uncomfortable? Like you have much more money than I do. And I have, you know, this much. And he goes, no, like, it's fine. Like my money's your money and your money's my money. We can just combine it. And I'm like, what am I going to lose? I mean, he has this much and I have that much. If we combine it, we have this much. And I'm like, all right. So once I did that, though, it screwed me over, really, because anything I wanted to do, anything I did, you know, speaking of Starbucks, never forget the day he's going through like the transactions and he goes, $19 at Starbucks. What did you buy? I'm like, I don't know, coffee. And he was like, when did you do that? I was like, I don't know. What day does it say? And he was like, Saturday. And I'm like, so Saturday before you, when you went to Starbucks, before you went to the golf course, he's like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was interesting how like, if I had made that $19 purchase, it's why did you buy this? Who did you buy it for? And when he did it, it was fine. So once my money was in that account and once my, you know, my bank, like all my deposits were going into that account and I knew that like to leave, it was going to, first of all, living in Southern Maine, it's so expensive to even get a, a place. I would need a first month's deposit, last month's deposit. I felt like if I left, I was going to have literally nothing all over again. And that is actually what ended up happening. I I did walk out of the relationship with no money, but it got to a point where it just wasn't worth it anymore. It was worth just stepping away and restarting. Was there ways that he controlled how you looked or what you wore? Oh, yes. You know, actually, it's very interesting that you bring up that point. So he had a very, he knew what he wanted me to look like. And he, that's what he wanted. So he wanted me to have beach blonde hair. Like it didn't matter. Like I could put a little bit of blonde, a little bit of blonde, a little, he always wanted more. It needed to be bleach blonde. He wanted me to go tanning. I needed to tan. He wanted my nails done all the time, 
all the time. Um, and then this is the big one. He actually made me go to main plastic surgery. I got a consultation and he put $500 down and was like, you're getting your boobs done. Regardless of the fact that I didn't want them done, he was like, it's going to make me more attractive to you. And he talked about it every single day. Do you think I'm going to be more attracted to you once you have your boobs? Like, I think I can't wait for you to have your boobs. Like, I want this. I want that. He would literally look at women and be like, she has fake boobs. She has fake boobs. I like her boobs. And like, he was very, very obsessed with it. And so I had a consultation and I was like, you know, if I was going to get anything done, I'd rather get my broken nose fixed. Like, that's what I've always wanted to get fixed. And he was like, Olivia, this is the one thing that you can do for me. I'm your fiance. You can do this one thing for me. And so he always like made me feel guilty that like, if I didn't do it for him, like it was really selfish of me. So I just went through the motion. We booked the appointment. And then he was really upset when the appointment had to get pushed out to, it got pushed out like to eight more months because I actually needed a medical procedure that I couldn't have both appointments. And so he was really upset about it. But thankfully, I left him before the boob job was ever supposed to be done. And I canceled it. And I'm so thankful that I did not do that. Because it's not something that I wanted. I didn't want to change myself. But that's what he wanted. He also would always talk about my cellulite. He had asked me if my stretch marks would go away. He really wanted them to go away. He talked about my posture, the way I slouch. He would call me out all the time for slouching. He would just, he'd pick at the things that he knew bothered me. He also didn't like the way I worked out. My workouts didn't do what I needed. And I was like, well, what do I, he, you need your butt lifted. So you need to run. Like your workouts aren't going to do that. And it was just like this, he clearly wanted a beach blonde, very tan, big boob, skinny girl. And he didn't want you to think. And how about your clothes? Did he influence that? Yeah. So he at home, he wanted me to dress very slutty. He got very upset with me that when I would come home from work that I wanted to wear like leggings and stuff like that. He wanted me to dress slutty and he didn't like that I would take my makeup off when I'd get home. He's like, you never do your makeup for me. So his idea would be that like his perfect world would be me to get home and basically go put lingerie on and walk around and cook dinner and keep a full face of makeup on and let him have sex with me while I'm cooking because that's what he wants. And like he would try that stuff with me all the time. And I would like be like, no, like I'm literally cooking. Like I don't want to do that. And it would just like he would get set off and freak out and flip out and sometimes throw things or push things around or call me. It's usually the the calling me a B word or a C word. And, you know, hearing those things now is actually very triggering for me because I had been called those names like every single day that I became numb to it. And now if somebody were to call me that name, like, cause I don't think anybody has called me that name since I've left that relationship. I've never been, it's, it's been over a year and nobody has called me those names. Like nobody, but I heard it every single day, multiple times a day. So it's just like in one ear, out the other ear. But not really. Yeah, no, not really. Actually, it did sit there very heavily. And it was hard because then you start to like question your own words. Like you feel like you're, you're not pretty, you're not this, or you need that, or you need that to like be pretty. And outside of work, you know, he definitely didn't want me dressing provocatively. He probably he wanted me to dress very, very conservative when I go out. But you know, home is where he would want me to dress very slutty. How did you when you ended up pressing charges on him or press charges were pressed on him, tell, tell me about that whole court activity. How did that come about? So the pressing charges, this was actually a very, very scary time for me. So I ended up going over to the courthouse and filing my protection from abuse order. And 
I was really worried and I knew I needed a protection from abuse order because one, he harasses, he does not stop. He, his employer that he had fired him, he harassed her every single day. She had to put a protection from harassment order on him to stop the harassment, which he continued to still violate. So I knew I was going to need that, especially just knowing that he continued to stalk his girlfriend from 10 years ago from my phone on her, like to check her Facebook. And so, and just like the constant calling and showing up and he always threatens me that if I left him, he was going to end my life, end my life and his life, or he was going to stalk me and, you know, nobody else could have me. So I felt like if I had a protection from abuse order in place, it would stop him from being able to contact me. And I needed to do that because the very next day, his mom's contacting me, telling me that she got her hair colored. Like they, they didn't want me to leave. And his sister's trying to snoop as to like what I'm doing. Wait, wait, what is the mother having the hair color? What's that all about about? So the day after I had left him and I had like ended the relationship and went into hiding, she contacted me the next day on messenger and was like, Hey, like I got my hair colored today. Like was still just trying to keep a relationship with me because the day before they were saying, you know, don't give up on him. Like, you know, he's going to get help. Like, you know, don't give up on him, do what you have to do, but please stick around. And then his sister was like, Hey, like, how's it going? And the next day I was literally in the courthouse and his sister was screenshotting text messages of him saying like, I'm an idiot. I messed up. I'm so stupid. She was sending them to me. So he was still trying to contact me in those ways. And so I ended up putting the protection from abuse order and I was so worried that like maybe the judge wouldn't approve it. So I went to the town that I went to Saco, Saco police to file my report. And I just wanted to have a report on file so that when the judge looked at it, he could say, oh, like she has a report. You are listening to Let's Talk About It, conversations with survivors of domestic abuse. With me, your host, Patricia McLean, president, founder of Finding Our Voices. You can hear us on WERU-FM, second Friday of every month at 4 p.m. Back now to my conversation with Olivia, a 24-year-old in Southern Maine. And whatever. So I went down and I filed my report with them. And then I was like, you know, I don't want the judge to have any reason to not help me out. So I found out you have to make a report in the town to which the incident occurred. And there were two incidences that I had text messages and proof and remembered the date and time and everything. So I was like, I'm going to go to Old Orchard and file two more reports. I filed the reports last January. So the first report that I made was actually from August because I had dates, times, text messages to validate what I was saying. So in August, um, this is the first domestic violence assault charge. He and I were having a fight. And I was like, I am not going to be with you anymore. I'm literally done. I can't do this anymore. So I go upstairs and I take my ring off and I set it on the bedstand and he comes bulging through and he grabs the ring and he's trying to put the ring back. He's like reaching over my body and trying to shove the ring back on my finger. And I was like, I'm not doing it. And he got really mad. And so he took his fist and he punched the bed and then he lifted again. And on a second punch, he actually punched me in my elbow and I thought that he broke it. So I go to the bathroom and I shut the door and he busts through the door. I'm crying and like, it's all purple. And I'm like, I think he broke my arm. And he's like, you can't go to the hospital. Like, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. I love you. It was an accident. And he would not let me go to the hospital. But the next day I couldn't really type. Like it was still hurting. And I was like, I need to go to the doctors and like get this looked at. And he was like, well, where are you going to go? I'll call them and let them know that you're coming, which is obviously because he wanted to tell them the story. And he was like, what are you going to tell them? You can't tell them what happened. I was like, I'm just going to say that you threw a baseball and the baseball like hit me in the elbow or something. He was like, that's not a believable story. You know, say that you tripped over the puppy and hit your elbow or something like that. So when I got there, that's what I said. But 
So that was the first incident. So I had text messages to validate that that happened. And then the other incidents, which mind you, Sacco actually took my report and didn't do anything with it. I went over to Old Orchard afterwards to file two more reports, which weren't even physical. Well, one was one of them was assault. He had just grabbed my arm because I was trying to call 911 because he was driving aggressively and he wouldn't let me. He took my phone. But I had two incidences that I reported to um, Old Orchard. And when I got there, Old Orchard was like, you need to come into the room right now. And they started looking at everything that I had. I had thousands of text messages and videos. They were like, this is enough to prosecute and we need to get this. And I was like shaking at this point because I was like, wait, what just happened? This went from doing a protection from abuse order to like, they're like, we need to, this, this, like, we need to get him arrested. This needs to be taken care of. So Old Orchard like started just going all in and within 13 hours, they had a warrant out for his arrest. And then within a day, they arrested him. They, they did a good job. They did a they good did. job. Old Orchard, literally to this day, I I would love to do something for them because they did a phenomenal job with it. He was arrested by the state police. They found him and then his family hired their family attorney who helped him in the past get out of his, you know, engagement with the prostitute charges. But then what's interesting is we go to the protection from abuse hearing and I have an attorney who's representing me. So I didn't have to see him. And well, I did see him, but I didn't talk to him. Who and paid for your lawyer? And was it a good lawyer? Domestic violence, actually, the DVRC through these doors um, did, or actually, no, it was Caring Unlimited. Sorry, it was Caring Unlimited. And both DVRCs are phenomenal, but Caring Unlimited was like, we're going to provide you with a lawyer. And the lawyer called me. She was phenomenal. She showed up. It was me in court. She took me into a room. She was like, he's playing a little bit of chess right now because he kept kind of going back and forth. But I had, this is what's crazy is I had um, his suit. And I didn't know that I had actually taken a couple of his suits and I didn't want any reason for him to contact me. So I told her, I was like, I have a couple of his suits. So when we're done here, I'll drop him off at the police station. He can go pick them up in Saco. And she's like, okay. So she told him that. He goes, I actually have a box for her too. It's pots and pans. And she was like, okay. So I was like, I don't remember having his pots and pans, but whatever, I'll take them. So I go to the Saco police department and Saco is like, oh, no, 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 we can't take that. You have to meet up with them outside. And I was like, okay. So I call his father. I'm like, I'm at the police station. You have to come pick up the suits. We have to do the exchange together because like they can't just take drop off. So his father gets there. His father puts the box into my car. Mind you, the box is open top. I can see there's no pots or pans in there. And he takes the suits. So I get out. I, I, put, I get in my car. I drive off to a parking lot and I get into this box. And the top of the box is just trash, like trash, paint, all sorts of stuff. And as I get to the bottom, there's pictures of me with my head ripped off on all of them, ripped up love letters, ripped up every, like this is right at five, 10 minutes after he signed the protection from abuse order. He had this box delivered to me. So then I email it and I tell Saco PD and they're like, it's the return of property. And I'm like, what? So here's how I knew that Saco didn't do anything about the report that I made. So the DA has all this stuff from Old Orchard Beach. And they're like, we still don't have anything from Saco. We still don't have anything from Saco. I'm like, how do you not have anything from Saco? Like, and I keep calling and Saco doesn't have anything. So one day I am just irate at this point. Cause I'm like, now it's April. So it, I made the report in this, it was like December 30th. It's now April and they still don't have anything. So I call Saco. I'm like, I need to speak to a supervisor. Supervisor calls me at 11 PM at night wake up, I answer the call, I talk to him. I explain everything to him. I'm like, I don't understand how this case is not on the DA's desk. Like, 
the DA needs this case information. And he was like, you know, I'm really glad you followed up on this because sometimes these things slip through the cracks. DB slips through the cracks. Awesome. Glad to know this. So he, the next day, the DA had everything from Stocko after pushing on Stocko to get this over to them. And within two weeks, the grand jury indict, they actually indicted him on multiple charges because they were able, now that they had everything from Stocko, they wanted to bring more charges against him. So they had to bring it to the grand jury of Maine who indicted him on two counts of domestic violence stalking and three counts of domestic violence assault. But here's the thing. The police kept saying, you know, you need protection. You need a firearm. You need this. You need that. And it was so scary because he kept trying to, he would just like log into my Hulu and change all of the information to him. Just small little ways. We found out that he had been actually accessing my email. So he saw all of my correspondence and everything that I was sending to the DA. He had saw everything I was sending to my attorneys. He saw everything. Tell me the resolution with the court. I'm guessing that there wasn't justice and there was a plea deal and that he wasn't held accountable. But tell me what, what did happen. So what I actually did for safety purposes, because I was really, really, I was convinced he was going to take my life and I wasn't sure that I wasn't, I didn't trust that the the law would actually, you know, say, Hey, she actually gave us over 4,000 pieces of evidence. And this is actually what happened. I wasn't convinced that they would do that. So I was like, I need to share my story. That way the world knows if anything happens to me, this is what happened. This is my proof. And this is my evidence because it's on this. So I started sharing it on TikTok. It went viral because Hundreds and thousands of women and men are going through this. And it's crazy because we're not alone in it. But we think we are. So I started sharing my story on there. And I think that it absolutely provided a layer of protection. The detective I worked with was like, I think that's great. You do it. You have a right to share your story. For a long time, I actually blurred his face because I was really scared. I was like, oh, like, you know, his family is really wealthy. They're millionaires. Like, they're going to sue me. You know, they have this family attorney. And then I was like, but it's not character defamation. It's not slander. And it's truth. You had a lot of people too that were like, you might not want to do that. You might not want to do that. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do it because this is a problem. We shouldn't have to be silent about it, period. So I did. I, I ended up releasing his name. I released what he did because I think that if he's not going to be held accountable, like in the law's eyes, and he's not going to I think the world, I think the whole state of Maine deserves to know who this man is. And here's why. Because as I shared that story on TikTok, more than 37 women who were abused by him or sexually assaulted and harassed by him came forward. More than 27 women here in Maine in the credit union industry came forward and shared their story about him assaulting them, sharing their story. They were like, thank you for giving me a voice. Make me feel comfortable coming forward. One of these individuals was actually a VP of a credit union. There was a loan officer. It was absolutely heartbreaking and shattering hearing and listening to what happened to her and what he did to her. But she wasn't comfortable going into work and saying, this is what happened after you guys all set me up on a date with him. He actually raped me. There were women in college who came forward that I'm not including. So he's a very dangerous individual and he's going to continue to do this because he's a narcissist. And I don't believe that he's going to learn his lesson, especially after what the results in the court were. So the results in the court, uh, at first he was supposed to do 30 days in jail. So he had three counts of domestic violence assault and two counts of domestic violence stalking. He was going to do 30 days in jail. And then, you know, he would have to do the, the court ordered 52 week battered. So this is what the, the district attorney come to you and tell you this is what we're offering him or this is what yes. 
get? They did come to me and I said, absolutely not. I don't agree. I want to go to trial. And they told me that, unfortunately, this is how the state, you know, wants to handle it because, you know, what happens is it takes one person in that jury to say, nope, this is an abuse. And then the whole case is gone and he walks away with nothing. But, you know, the detective actually told me that that's not really necessarily true, that it's more, it's more of a money thing and a time thing, unfortunately, that they just don't want to do that. And it really bothers me because I had such a strong case and I was, I was ready to go to trial. I wanted him. That's the thing that really gets me is there, they, they malign victims. They say, that they don't prosecute these cases because the victims won't testify. But then you have a case like me and like you, where the victim is stepping forward and 100% cooperating and they don't, they don't do it. They don't prosecute these cases. They They, don't get them to trial. Yep. No, they told me that the next thing he does will land him in jail. Okay. So you're telling me that the next time that he hurts someone or potentially goes over the top, takes my life, takes someone else's life. That's when we're going to punish him. So that's what really bothered me is I thought I was like, no, I'm I want to go to trial. He needs to say no to this plea deal. So here's what they ended up doing. So he actually ended up manipulating his way into a credit union as an AVP of a credit union in Connecticut while all of this was happening. So the DA calls me and they said, listen, you know, we have to take away the 30 day jail time because he's not going to plead guilty if we give him jail time. But he'll plead guilty if we don't give him jail time. And what we're going to do is we're going to ban him from York and Cumberland County unless he's on I-95 transit. And I was like, no, absolutely not. And they're like, Olivia, this is what we need to do to get him to plead guilty. So this is this is what we're offering him. So I was like, oh, great. So he's going to plead guilty. He's going to keep his job down there. And he walks away with nothing. And honestly, the the day that he pled guilty was terrifying because he kept rolling his eyes. He was very, like, he was inconvenienced by being there. He pled guilty to one count of domestic violence stalking and one count of domestic violence assault. And he is banned from York and Cumberland County. He's on a four-year probation. He has, I think, collectively two years of jail time hanging over his head. No, no, no drugs, no alcohol, that type of thing. The 52-week battered program and, and therapy is what the outcome was. So he pled guilty on June 17th. And I was kind of like, you know, I had a a golf tournament coming up and it was on July 24th, I think. And I was like, I have a feeling because this golf tournament wasn't in, you know, it was, it was around Waterville area. So I was like, okay, so he knows I'm going to be at this golf tournament. He didn't want me to go. He knew about this golf tournament when I was with him and he told me I wasn't going. So I called the probation officer just as like a heads up. I was like, hey, listen, I'm going to be in the area. I'm going to be at this golf course. And I just want to let you know. Well, when I did call the probation officer and I'm telling him I'm going to have this golf tournament and I'm worried he might be there, he goes, what's the golf course? And I said, it's called Natanis. And his probation officer goes silent. And then he goes, Olivia, he just reported a part-time job there a couple days ago. It was just mind-blowing to me because I'm like, look at all these young girls that are here at this golf course who work here. And he, this type of individual who has domestic violence assault, who has domestic violence stalking, is getting these types of jobs because he's so good at his manipulation. And, and he will continue to. And so I do worry about my safety in, you know, at the end of his probation, because he is very much an obsessive person. He has always, you know, checked in on his ex from college, you know, and she just lives across the country. So it just happens to work out for her. But it's still scary. And it's scary to know that in a year from now, I have to go fight my case as to why I feel like I need a protection order for another two years. And it's crazy to think that every two years, I have to go back and fight that. because and especially... 
because a lot of times the lawyers tell you that you need there needs to be new you know new activity they say yeah yep exactly it's crazy because I feel like the moments that they don't grant me that is the moments that my whole life is going to flip upside down. I believe that because I know him. I know him. Now he's learned, okay, I got to be smarter about how I do this. He's not going to change. So it's, it's you know, it's scary. Probably dating, he's probably living with someone or dating someone else right now. Like he's just accumulating mm-hmm. victim after victim. Yep, exactly. And that's a big reason why I share my platform. You know, the next girl, I hope the algorithm will bring her to my platform. She'll see my side and she'll she'll probably think I'm crazy at first. And that's okay. I thought the same thing. But when she starts to be able to relate to the same stuff that I went through, she will know that she can reach out. The next girl can reach out to me. I will help her 100%. The next girl, I will help her. I'm actually collecting donations to donate to the women's shelter here in Cumberland County between now and March 31st, because one of the big things that was really hard, like you and I were talking about, that it was so hard for me to get out of my relationship was that financial reason or not, you know, just the fear of homelessness. That's a scary thing. Like, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? What am I going to eat? And I want to be able to provide basically a U-Haul. That's my goal. I want to fill a U-Haul full of donations and drop it off at the shelter But I want those women in this community who are silently in the darks, I want them to see, okay, she's dropping off diapers, she's dropping off formulas, she's dropping off, you know, clothes and makeup and all this stuff that I'm so worried about not having. She's she's got it. She has the resources for me. And I also want to highlight and really, really educate people and let them know, Caring Unlimited through these doors, these are agencies that I never heard about. And I'm so fortunate that I had a friend who was like, hey, I work for one of these, call them. I called them. They got me an attorney. They helped me through all the process. They helped me fill out the paperwork. They got me cameras. They got me a little personal alarm. Um, they provided me with so many resources that I don't think that people know that they're there and they're not only there for you to talk to. I think a lot of people think when you call a domestic violence hotline, you're just calling to talk to someone and that you can, you can talk to someone, you can call them, just say, Hey, I don't know if I'm even being abused. Do you think this is abuse? Just call them, just call them and ask but they can do so much more. I know that they have resources, you know, help you get into an apartment. They can help you with your rent for a little bit here and there. They can help you with whatever it is that you need. I was portraying such a false narrative on social media. He and I looked happy. We were going to baseball games. We were going on vacations. We had the nice cars. We had the nice townhouse. Like we had the puppy, we had this, and we created this false narrative. But what you don't know is that in every single one of those pictures that I posted where it looked like we were happy and perfect, there was an argument beforehand, there was an argument afterhand, there was probably some physical abuse. Heck, there was a picture on my social media where if you zoomed in, my freaking eyelashes were all clumped together because we had just, I had just been crying. So it really goes to show you that social media is not real, and you should never believe or compare your relationship to the people that are on there because you really don't know what they're going through. They may look picture perfect. But a picture is one second and you don't know what's happening before and after those pictures. And I was, you know, creating this false narrative. So everybody thought that we were so happy. So when I broke out my story, everybody's like, what? This happened? Are you sure? Like, and it really, really stunted a lot of people because it, ever, nobody expected it from us. And again, it made it very difficult for me to get out because he had so much power and control in, in just his industry that I was convinced if I left him, he was going to destroy my career and everybody in Maine was going to think I was crazy. 
And truthfully, they probably would think I was crazy if I didn't share my story on TikTok. We're in 2023. It's time to stop being silent about domestic violence. It's not something to be ashamed of if you're a victim. You're not the person that needs to feel shame. The abuser needs to feel shame. Thank you, Olivia. Olivia will be joining me and six other survivors of domestic abuse on Sunday, February 12th, 2.30 p.m. in Waterville at the Maine Film Center. The program, sponsored by the Oak Institute of Human Rights at Colby College, is on how domestic violence impacts children. Three short movies, a Survivor Speaks panel discussion, and a community conversation with the police chief, William Bonney, and District Attorney Megan Maloney. For more information, contact me at hello at findingourvoices.net. Hope to see you there. And now I am happy to bring Janine into the conversation. Janine is one of 45 female Maine survivors on our posters and bookmarks that are putting a face to domestic violence. Welcome, Janine. So Janine, I just wanted to catch up with you and talk about financial abuse because mm-hmm. you are the person that told me 99% of domestic abuse involves financial abuse. You know, way at the beginning when I first started finding our voices before I had talked to all the hundreds of women who have validated that. And before I looked yeah. back and realized that financial abuse was a big part of what kept me trapped as well. Yeah, Absolutely. The roads that you thought you had put into place so that you could leave a relationship when you felt it was appropriate, those roads have been blocked. And they do it deliberately. They do it knowingly. They would deny it emphatically. But it's true. It is a fact. One of the studies that I'm most proud of was a study that was conducted here in Maine by the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence which was really a result of my first effort at legislative measures to bring awareness to the subject of financial abuse. The first thing that we did was we got some funding, the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence did, to conduct a study in the state of Maine. The study took about a year to do, and it's about 60 pages long. It was quite informative. Yet again, it was one more study that bore out the statistic that just kept repeating themselves, whether they were done in Maine or whether they were done in Hawaii or California or Australia or France, all over the world, people began talking about this issue and doing their own studies to try to present to their own legislatures. And the story never changed. It was either 98% or 99% or 100% of women who found themselves in violent, toxic relationships reported that prior to the events that occurred where they were actually seeking help to try to get out, be that a court order or a protection from abuse order, they documented that they were targets of financial abuse. I was married to a high income earner. I had my own high income salary at the time. We were both making six figures. This was, you know, in 1984. And I always had my own money. I didn't get married till I was almost 30. He was 35. He had all of his own money. And we never really joined our finances. I really didn't realize I was in trouble until I filed for divorce. And I realized I had no clue what was going on with our money, which was my money. And the short story pretty much is he bought things that I didn't know about that I was actually paying for. Boats, 
jet skis, property, um, vacations. His credit was maxed out. He was making payments. But now that I'm divorcing him, his debt, which what I which I thought was his debt on, you know, major purchases that I thought we'd already paid for. I'm on the hook now for 50 percent as a Finding Our Voices ambassador. Uh, a lot of women get forwarded to me to, to counsel them about financial abuse. And a lot of them, you know who they are. You've sent them my way as well. They too don't realize that there are targets. You hear things big and you hear things small. Ladies have said that they weren't allowed to wear lipstick because their partners thought that it was a waste of money. Yet these guys have two snowmobiles and a snowmobile trailer in the driveway. Our wonderful Mary Lou, she says that he used to buy like boats, that, just like you said, boats. Exactly. But meanwhile, if she wanted to go shopping, you know, $20, just like thrift store shopping, he made a big fuss over that. It's funny you would mention thrift store shopping. Um, a dear friend of mine who has asked me a couple of occasions, she clearly is in a toxic relationship and is not ready to deal with it. But she, one of the things that she asked me one time uh, after one of the exercise classes that we were in, she said, you know, it really bothers me when so-and-so gets upset if I go thrift store shopping. Now, again, she was a high-income earner. She was a surgical nurse at Maine Medical Center. Um, she's retired now. But she wasn't allowed to do that. Or they mock you for doing it. Or they, that was her little hobby. She loved doing it. She loved, you know, finding a little treasure. Probably like Mary Lou did. But they just want to rob you sometimes of your joy of the experience as well. The harder you fight for your money, for just what you're legally entitled to, the more um, painted with this broad brush of a vengeful woman trying to take the guy to the cleaners. I've heard it happening over and over again is the husband, boyfriend, will tell the children your mother is taking me to the cleaners. Your mother is spending money that should go to your college fund and villainize the mother for trying to get some money and turning the kids against her on that basis. Even though he fought tooth and nail for 50-50 custody, which I eventually agreed to with the advice of a very good attorney I had. He said, I've seen this type. They just want to fight and win, but they don't want any of the responsibility. They don't want any of the financial responsibilities, any of the emotional responsibilities. He goes, I, I give it a couple of months. He'll walk away. He won't have anything to do with the kids. So let him win the 50% custody, but you're going to be the one ending up taking care of them. He said it would happen in two months. It happened in two weeks. He visited them twice in two weeks and never again. And then that's when they stopped paying child support, which is post-separation financial abuse. When we were going through the settlement talks, the first thing my ex wanted to do is the money that I was going to get. He wanted to put it all in alimony. And I remember that I read somewhere that sometimes they stop paying if they're, you know, narcissists or if they're abusers, they maintain that control over you. And that's why I held out for a lump settlement so that it would be mine and that he wouldn't have that control. If they're not going to pay you child support, they're definitely not going to pay you alimony. One thing my ex did is my my lawyer and I charged him with contempt around the protection from abuse order. And as soon as we filed that, the alimony 
was like 10 days late. And it was the only time it was ever late because it was just done automatically, you know, through the accounts. But there's no question that that was a way to um, send me a message. Exactly. It, it is part of the MO. And the more people who understand um, that there's a thing called financial abuse or economic abuse, the more they can be open to the idea of maybe it's happening to me. Janine, let's together, let's come up with some advice for some women. What are some proactive things they could do to protect themselves from financial abuse? If I was a 25 or a 30 year old woman right now, knowing what I know now, I would never commingle my money with a man or a, a domestic partner. I would never have children that I didn't intend or expect to fully pay for at some point. And number three, I would never get married. Because getting married is very difficult and very expensive to get out of. And sometimes you can do it in a weekend. And sometimes, as in my case, it takes 10 years and close to half a million dollars. I was fortunate at the very, very end to prevail in court. I had just a dynamic judge down in Florida who understood coercive control and financial abuse. And she wrote it in her final ruling that it was a 10-year war that he had conducted upon me and my children. And she literally gave me the keys to his condo at this point now down in Florida, uh, right on the beach. And I was able to leverage that to get all of the funds that I was entitled to. Janine, could you just give me a summary of what was passed in the legislation and what, what the women out there should know about it in order to help themselves? The state of Maine has a very forward um, feeling approach to economic abuse, financial abuse. And we were able to pass LD 748 in 2019, which was an act to help survivors of financial abuse. The most important thing that that bill did, that was my bill, the one that I worked with and that I testified in support of. And thank you again, you testified in support of that bill also. That bill did two things. The first thing it did was change the legal definition of domestic violence in the state of Maine to include the term financial abuse. That's fundamental. There has to be a, just has to be a mindset shift in order to wrap your head around financial abuse legally being part of the definition of domestic violence and domestic abuse. So it changed the definition, which really allows in, in court for you to, to bring that term, that terminology up in your pleadings and in your motions. The second thing that, that LD748, that bill did, was provide an avenue for survivors of financial abuse and domestic violence to work with the big three credit aware of that I testified on, that seems to be the one that people talk about. It's LD 947, which was a bill that allows targets of financial abuse that when it comes to your actual divorce, your disillusionment of the assets, that a judge can deviate from the gold standard, which is 50-50. When you get divorced, they 50-50. But if you can demonstrate you were a victim or a target of financial abuse, whatever that means. And the definition is so broad, it's so unique. But if you can demonstrate that you were a target, the judge has authority to redistribute those assets. So maybe he'll give the target of abuse 60% 
and the other partner 40%. Every divorce lawyer in Maine needs to know about this. Do you think every divorce lawyer in Maine does know about this? They don't. And that gets back to the leadership issue that that I'd mentioned earlier. I think that there's a, a lot more that our local domestic violence agencies and our statewide agencies could be doing to, to mandate that judges and lawyers and prosecutors are more educated about what the laws are and what these new rules are and what these new community standards are so that they can bring it up in court because it's simply not happening. I think the system is there to do that, to educate lawyers, prosecutors, district attorneys, and judges, especially in family court, but that's not happening. And that's what I would like to see happen in the future. Okay. Well, let's add that to the things that we wanted to get done. (laughs) Exactly. If what Olivia and Janine and I talked about sounds familiar, if someone in your life is controlling what you say, do, think, and making you miserable and afraid, say something to someone. In Maine, there's a domestic abuse agency in your area, and you can access their 24-7 hotline by calling 1-866-834-HELP. To connect with the sisterhood of survivors that is Finding Our Voices, Find us at findingourvoices.net or reach out directly to me, founder president, at hello at findingourvoices.net. Thank you to my terrific sound engineer, Tammy Oropesa, and my terrific daughter, Jackie Lee McLean, whose music opens and closes this program. Have a terrific Valentine's Day, and on that day and every day, remember, love should feel good. It's been a long, long